0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: We will have a news conference with President Draghi, his final one. Wow. Eight years is up. Where has that time gone? Let's talk about this market, shall we? 3M cutting forecast, CAT cutting forecast, Texas Instruments cutting forecasts. The market getting a ton thrown at it, and it's holding up really well. To discuss, Kate Moore, BlackRock, Global Allocation Investment Team Head of Thematic Strategy. Good morning to you, Kate.
2: Good morning.
1: Sometimes the information content in how a market responds to data can be just as important as the data itself. That's right. The last couple of days, do they speak to that?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. So there's there's one way to think about investing, which is it's not good enough to have the right information or what you perceive to be the right information. It's not good enough even to think about or think you have a view on what consensus thinks the right information is. You also have to get to that third degree. What does consensus think consensus thinks? And I think this is what's really critically important. Consensus thought consensus, thought things were gonna get a lot worse. And uh, we're at a place now where maybe on some of the industrial companies, we're not seeing a meaningful pickup in activity, but this pace of deceleration has slowed and there are signs of life and actually uh, some words used like optimistic and optimism across a number of the cyclical sectors that are leading people to think that you know fourth quarter maybe first quarter of 2020 are going to be the 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 cyclical low and i think that's leading these people who have been positioned for you know a prolonged uh, slowdown perhaps even a recession to take uh to take on some of these cyclical companies again
1: well let's take this morning as an example, Euro stocks holding up really quite well, Yeah. even after another round of disappointing PMIs. A lot of people might be saying we've seen the worst of it. Are you confident we have?
2: No, and the Euro stocks is a great example actually, because if you think about this, the the macro backdrop is still really weak. We have not actually gotten past that point of uh, decelerating growth. Uh, The fundamental story for a lot of the European companies, particularly domestics, don't look exceptionally strong. Valuations, it's hard to argue they're cheap, especially when you think about the companies that are producing growth and the premium they're trading to the rest of the market. But you know, this really comes back to the sentiment where a lot of people had not owned European stocks for a while. We had seen consistent outflows across all uh, European managed funds as well as ETFs. And there's a little bit of a catch-up. The promise that maybe there's some fiscal stimulus, that maybe there's going to be uh, some signs of life in 2020, and the market's outperformed. I'm not sure that outperformance is sustainable.
0: Uh, John, to what Charles Cantor said uh, with Newberger Berman, it's idiosyncratic. Now there's Twitter cratering down 13% off, uh, you know, lowest level since April, and off uh, quarterly sales disappointment, et cetera, et cetera. We're all buried in the idiosyncratic now. Yeah. For mere mortal investors just trying to make the retirement plan go up. Do you take a bigger, broader view and just ignore the idiosyncratic?
2: Well, I think you've made a good point, though, Tom. There are lots of very specific stories, not just in this earnings season, but in terms of market leadership throughout the course of 2019. The good news is especially I'd say the U.S. large cap space, has a um, large number of these strong idiosyncratic stories. And that's kind of what what gives the strength of the S&P.
0: Have we ever been more miserable, John, going up 20% year-to-date?
1: I don't think so. The scars of Q4 2018 are still so deep, Kate. Or two thousand. And I think a lot of people are still worried about going into 2020, levered up, adding some cyclicality to their portfolios without really seeing a bottoming out in the economic data. Talk to me about the spread right now between south side expectations and buy side sentiment. Clearly not a precise science, but just how you interpret that at the moment.
2: Yeah, I think there's a huge spread actually. Uh, One of the easiest ways to gauge this is in terms of uh, cash levels and overall defensive positionings on the buy side relative to the sell side earnings expectations for the 12-month forward and you know something John and I were just talking about was that if you look at this week last year uh, expectations for earnings over the next year in that case 2019 but in this case for 2020, well, pretty much the same. This is another way to say the sell side hasn't significantly adjusted their expectations yet, but the behavior on the buy side in rotation and holding higher cash and slightly more defensive positioning um, really doesn't square with what might have been decent numbers for earnings that are in the sell side forecasts. I think people have been scared. There's been the geopolitics, there's policy, there's the growth data, and they're very, very concerned that. The duration of this cycle right. uh, is too long.
0: At BlackRock, what's the percentage of people that have enjoyed this bull market? Has this been the all time loneliest up of the last one year or two years?
2: Uh, percentage of people who have enjoyed it in 2019 or, you know, I'll over take the 2018, yeah.
0: 2017. You know, I, I get the feeling it's actually pretty lonely that a lot of people, because of these idiosyncratic geopolitical corporate stories, have just said no or they're not in fully.
2: Yeah, they... Even when you are invested, I think the anxiety level and the fear that something could really reverse the market is much higher than it has been in any post-crisis period. You know, that doesn't make the the sleep quality of many of our investors um, particularly high.
1: So, Kate, what have people been buying? They've been rewarding the companies with structural growth tailwinds. Morgan Stanley have a take on this this week. They say the narrative of slowing growth has become obvious. The market has been rewarding companies with structural growth tailwinds, betting they could grow through a slow down, this has created valuation risks. Right. And the valuation risks around say, the software companies, et cetera. Where do you stand on that area of the market right now?
2: Yeah, look, there are some pockets of the market, software is an obvious example, where valuations had become quite extended. Uh, and where actually revenue, yeah. revenue growth, was not going to really come through, uh, not even just at the back end of 2019. Mm -hmm. But the chances of it coming through in 2020 were down as well. This is what I will say, though. Um, I think the call to rotate out of the more Uh, secular growth stories is far too soon. In order to get very value-oriented plays and the the sort of cyclical losers to outperform, you need an acceleration in global growth. We're not looking for that right now.
0: What do I want to pay for a small company that has revenues up 14%? That's a big number, right? It's a
2: huge number. It's Microsoft, okay? I
0: mean, I get it, they're trading in like John, you just said, they're fully valued, right? Well, I didn't say that. But Kate Kate Moore gets the opportunity to say that. But what am I going to pay for double-digit revenue growth? And the answer in this environment is a lot, right?
2: And it's not even just the revenue growth number; it's the consistency of the revenue growth, the stability and consistency, (laughs) the consistency and stability of revenue growth, the constant delivery. You know, in a case like Microsoft, you have both a. you know annuity like business with a growth business okay. excellent management we got
0: another three hours with it right you've yeah. got one minute 50, real, real, 50 real seconds quickly here let's go yes. physics here the physics. market values inertial force of good things when you're at the zero bound when mm. you got potential gdp under two percent the value uh, that inertial force of good companies is all, it's it's like the it's like the nifty 50.
2: It's unbelievable. And and this is why I don't really buy into that value super cyclical rotation to 2020. There's still a lot of uncertainty out there. You know, around the US election, around the schism between US and China, uh the trade implications for a lot of different companies and industries, and there's a lot of other geopolitical risk. You take all of this stuff together and you say, you know, why would I step away from these companies that are consistently delivering whose products, whose services and whose management teams are best in class. So, you know, my view is that we have to be thoughtful around valuation, but you can't let valuation lead in when you're making a decision at this point in the cycle.
1: Kate Moore, great to see you. Fantastic Thank to you. have you with us in the studio, Kate Moore of BlackRock.
0: to give you context and we can do that from without question the most emotional book on the euro I have ever seen it was written five years ago his negotiations for the movie rights were so tenuous we're looking for the fall of the euro memorial day 2022 uh John but a gentleman from Denmark wrote a piercingly passionate book on the euro and on reinventing the eurozone and chapter by chapter, he went through what a god awful mess it was five years ago. This is the perfect guy to talk to about Draghi. You were there for the book launch, weren't you? I was. When was this, 2014? Was, yeah, 2014. In and around 2014. The party was three, 400 people. I, you know, I, I just. You know, I, I didn't talk to him. And I didn't get an was, invite. He was so large, I, I, I couldn't even talk to him at the party.
1: Walked away from Namura, set up his own shop. I just Great picked, to have him I with I just us. picked up three books and left. Jens Nordvig, Exante <laughs> Data, founder
0: and CEO. Good morning Jens.
3: Good morning. I don't know quite what to say, but uh, anyway, thanks for the intro. <laughs> Here's years. what I'll say.
0: When's the next book? It was so good. When's the next book?
3: I, uh, writing a book takes a little bit of time, so I have to get approval for my wife before I'm allowed to
1: write a second one. Eight years is up, Jens. 2011, President Draghi takes over the ECB. Eight years later, he steps down. What's his legacy?
3: So um, he everybody says he saved the euro. He did have a very important uh, contribution to ending the euro crisis. He had a very important contribution to sort of breaking new ground for the ECB, right? We had the Maastricht Treaty. It was supposed to be not legal for the ECB to buy any government bonds. And uh, he made it legal, essentially. Not without uh, He didn't change the legal text, but the interpretation of the legal text is totally different now. And I think if we can think about it in very concrete terms, like think about Italy over the last few years. We've had tremendous political uncertainty. That was the main point of my book, that the next crisis was going to come from political uncertainty, right? And despite of that uncertainty, because there's such a belief that the ECB is there to provide backstop, we had limited tension financial markets in Italy. We clearly had big moves up and down on BTBs, but it never turned into like a financial crisis dynamic. And that's because of the changes Draghi have done. That's his legacy.
1: Trichet let the re genie out of the bottle. Can we ever get it back in?
3: So, um, it all comes down to whether there's public support for the Euro. So, if you Go and look at opinion polls. It's actually pretty striking that we have all this pessimism about growth in the Eurozone, all the troubles that exist in the EU with Brexit and so forth. And then you ask people on the ground, do you want to keep the Euro? In every single country, support for the Euro is high, and in many countries, at a record high. Uh, obviously, in Italy, support is lower than other countries, but support is going up again. So it is quite interesting, given all the pessimism that is out there, that the euro is kind of liked.
0: Um, part of your wonderful ability here is to figure out the legacy of all these people. You do this out of our house, your academics in Denmark. Draghi is MIT. Draghi is fundamentally this twisted Anglo Saxon feel. Do they revert back to a Trichet Doisenberg? old-world ethos, or has he permanently changed the the theoretical structure of historical Europe versus a more British or more American economics?
3: Well, I think uh, that is a big question. And uh, I think one of the reasons why we had such a controversial decision at the last meeting was that Draghi wanted to set the tone for the next four years as well. And he's done so with the forward guidance where they essentially say they're not going to raise interest rates until actual inflation, not just what the ECB staff is forecasting, but actual inflation is getting to the yeah. target. It's quite an extraordinary form of yeah. forward guidance.
0: John, you know, I, I, I'll say this, and I, you know, I may be wrong, John, but the most thunderous, momentous headline in X number of years was that single headline two years ago where Draghi – began to put a timeline on we're not raising rates. Remember that? He said, like, we're not raising rates till the summer of 19 or whatever.
1: He pushed the limits of monetary policy. And Jens, I think the criticism will be that an argument of his for quite a while is that for rates to be high in the future, they need to be low now. They've been negative for five years. And I think the debate, even after he leaves the ECB today, will be whether any of this stuff actually works. Yeah. Has QE worked? Does negative rates actually work? Is he taking it too far? Has he taken it too far? The jury's still out, isn't it?
3: So I I think there's two aspects of this that uh, you need to separate. So I think there's a financial stability argument. The eurozone was incredibly vulnerable to financial crises before we learned that the ECB was willing to buy sovereign bonds. That part of legacy I don't think you can doubt. The other part of legacy pertains to inflation. And there, it's a much uh, tougher thing to, to, to sell that he has been very successful. Uh, you can look at where core inflation is now after essentially maxing out monetary policy and we're close to 1%, we should be close to 2%, right? So I think he's been cr- incredibly successful in terms of reducing the risk of financial crises. He's not been particularly successful in terms of getting inflation and inflation expectation up to the target. The
1: way I've told that story essentially is by saying the first half of his tenure underlined the power of the ECB, the second half highlighted its limitations. Let's push things on. President Lagarde... She's got a tough ask. A lot of people, especially on this side of the Atlantic, and I find it really interesting. I don't know what your conversations have been like with clients, Jens, but many people on this side of the Atlantic seem to believe that a president Lagarde can get European politicians to do something that Mario Draghi could not, and that's if you have the fiscal space, use it.
3: Yeah, I think there's this perception that she was in charge of fiscal policy in France, and therefore she has some kind of magic power to uh, make sure the coordination between the central banks and the fiscal authorities somehow uh, gets much, much better. I think it's a bit more complicated than that.
0: (laughs) Were negative interest rates in your book?
3: They were not. They were not. That's stunning. Yeah.
0: That's just stunning.
3: It's hard to predict the future, isn't it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's not only the future, but it's hard to predict a complete shattering of a theory. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what your econ one oh one book was in Denver, but in Denmark, but uh, whether it's Beg or it's 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 Dornbush Fisher Stars or what at Man Q, whatever. Man-Q, whatever none much. of this folks were living is in those books. No. Is it?
3: Like um like e- even if you think about debt sustainability, right? So you have this situation yeah. where you think, okay, if you have no growth, eventually your debt dynamics will run out of control. But if you have negative rates, that's not obvious yeah. anymore either, right? So everything well, gets turned on its head.
0: Quickly here, Jens Nordberg on the fiscal space.
3: So there is something going on in some European countries. There's something going on in Holland. There's something going on in France. What we're missing is a big shift in Germany, and they have constitutional limits. They need to find a different name for it. They need to call it (laughs) climate investment and get around the constitutional limits to get a big push going. That's really sort of the mm-hmm. the, the hope at right. the end of the tunnel is that we can find a new name for fiscal stimulus that can get around those constraints.
0: Yeah. Euro target, 111.23 right now, 12 months out. Come on. Tapes tapes recording.
3: The key thing is global growth. If global growth can recover a little bit, the yeah. dollar will be down and the euro will be meaningfully stronger. See
0: how he did that? That's, ta- Very that's, smart. that's decades of work. I didn't get a number and I didn't get a timeline. So think about
3: it,
1: when did we have peak happy he talk? Qu- peak happy talk spring of twenty eighteen for global economy and for global markets spring twenty eighteen, right? Before Are things you really start to break Mallon? down. No, I'm talking about global Uh-oh, markets and the global me. economy. The synchronized growth of twenty seventeen into early twenty eighteen, Euro dollar peaked out one hundred twenty five. Sterling one hundred forty as well. So, if things start to pick up it's again. Been, I
0: didn't do the exact math, but the Draghi era is a 16% depreciation in Europe. Oh, we've had a massive move.
1: 16%. At one move. point, they were fighting to get it down because it was too strong. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. They were good times, weren't they, Jens? When we're in and around yeah. 140, fighting You're to get You're still it lower.
0: talking to him? He didn't give us a number or a date. Well, I'm trying to get a number of out, of, out of him now. Please continue.
1: We
3: came from 139.7 before the negative rate started. And uh, obviously, we traded below 110 very recently. So it's a pretty meaningful move.
0: See, still looking past. Can you get from T minus 1 out to T plus 1 here? I still want a forecast.
3: I think in a global growth recovery scenario... Yeah, please. It's pretty easy to get the euro back up towards 120.
0: Okay, now we can move on. We can move forward. Jens Nordvig there. Can't say enough about the fall of the (laughs) euro. I tried to do it for him. Super book.
1: We can talk about someone that used to oversee the market operations of the ECB, the man that in this position would typically be executing the monetary policy. Really pleased to say that Francesco Papadia joins us now, former ECB Director General of Market Operations, overseeing market ops through to 2012 at the ECB. Francesco, good morning. Great to have you with us on the program.
4: Good morning to you
1: a big focus at the moment on what the ecb can and cannot buy and if they want to commit to 20 billion a month open-ended where will they be looking what are your thoughts on that at the moment francesco
4: i think uh, that uh, the latest information we have on this uh is that that they can go on for quite a while Uh, quite a while could mean uh, one more year um, they would not uh, bump uh, into the limits uh, for the uh, Germany, which is of course uh, the biggest uh, the biggest uh, problem. So they do have the time to revise the 33% limit uh, if uh, they would see uh, the problem coming.
1: There was a big debate a couple of years ago about would they go beyond corporate debt would they start to buy equities and that's ramped up again francesco I, I imagine that when you were at the ecb in 2011 2012 when you were executing the securities market program did you ever think they'd be buying corporate debt corporate paper
4: well that was not so far away uh, i mean we had been buying something similar to corporate debt which is cover bonds cover bonds are issued by banks so they are uh, a private uh, uh, kind of uh, paper, Uh, and we did uh, did that. When it comes to new things uh, that they could buy, uh, more than equities, which is a bit odd, I think. I mean, the Japanese are doing it, but um, I think it would be more likely that uh, they would buy uh, bank loans, uh, even without uh, securitization. Bank loans are already in the collateral pool, uh, of, uh, of the ECB and in a way that's the only asset which is in the collateral pool that is not bought outright so if I have to think of the new um, asset I think of bank loans.
1: Francesco, how controversial would that be for the ECB to buy the loans of banks that they also have to regulate?
4: Well I think that, that would be of an order of magnitude easier than buying bank bonds uh, because if you buy bank bonds you buy the credit of the bank if you no. buy bank loans you buy the credit of the customer uh, of the bank i mean not the borrower uh, so i think it would be easier uh, from from this point of view because you don't buy the credit of the bank
0: Francesco Papadia with us right now folks and we're just thrilled he could be with us all you need to know with a seminal effort at the ECB as director general for market operations Francesco John and I could talk to you for an hour this morning about this linkage of Mr. Draghi, Mr. Powell, Mr. Carney into a nascent question about trust in the very short-term market. Just with a view from 60,000 feet, every official John and I have spoken to, including Lawrence Kudlow of the White House and Bill Dudley, formerly with the New York Fed, have said there's not a problem here. Is there a problem brewing, brewing or existent in that very short-term overnight trust market
4: i don't see that uh, as a pressing problem quite frankly um i I see the main problem in my view uh is uh, that central banks are close to having exhausted uh, their ammunition unless uh, they invent something new which they could um, but unless uh, they do invent something new the Unconventional measures, in my view, uh, are close to having uh, finished their, yeah. uh, their effectiveness. Uh, so I don't see a problem of trust. Um, I see a problem of effectiveness, if you wish.
0: The vectors, if you take a log chart where slope matters, folks, and you look at the build-out of the balance sheets of the different major central banks, do you have confidence in the mathematics and calculation of the appropriate level of assets at any given central bank?
4: Well, I think uh, that uh, the mathematics of this, as you say, has changed a lot and keeps changing. Um, because what used to be normal in 2007-2008 is no longer normal, and there is no prospect that, that we will get back to normal. And the repo story in the United States is very meaningful in this, and it's, uh, throwing a lot of information for all central banks about the liquidity demand by, uh, by banks. And this forces, in a way, to to think again about this issue.
0: Well, it's almost, and I say this with great respect for your public service, it's almost learn as you go. What are you learning as you go from the data, John, can I say day by day almost from the New York Fed? What are we learning with each of these auctions and each of these processes?
4: Well, exactly that uh, the we have in the United States, uh, and, but that applies to Europe and, and Japan as well. Uh, I mean, the level of reserves uh, that banks have with a central bank is a large multiple, but a very large multiple of what it was before uh, the crisis. And everybody thought that that was quite enough uh, to satisfy the demand of liquidity uh, by banks. I mean, what is happening in the repo market, I've seen that the Fed came in with even larger uh, operations just, uh, just today shows uh, that we are not understanding exactly what is determining the uh, demand for liquidity by, by banks. We we have a view that the regulation has something to do, uncertainty has something to do, but I don't think that we have uh. a full view. So what we are learning is what is behind the liquidity demand of banks.
1: Uh, Francesco, just a final question from me to wrap up this interview. You left the ECB shortly after President Draghi took over the presidency of the European Central Bank. A final word from you on his legacy.
4: Well, I, 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 I always stress and, uh, that there is more continuity uh, than people think between different presidents. Uh, for instance, I think that, that the difference between uh, Draghi uh, and Trichet has been vastly exaggerated. And I find confirmation of this in the fact that, that Trichet recently came with a strong defence uh, of uh, Draghi's ECB. Uh, Draghi so in, in, in thinking about the legacy of, uh, of, of Draghi, I think one should see that uh, on a line that uh, in a way started with uh, Trichet, that was the first one to take unconventional measures, uh, and continuum was developed by Draghi more than any kind of rupture between the two. Let me just add that uh, after having left the ECB, I'm now with Bruegel uh, as a senior fellow. I should say that.
0: I'm so sorry I did not mention that earlier.
1: You can blame me for that, Francesco. Francesco Papadier of Bruegel, and also formerly the ECB Director General of Market Operations. Always great to get Francesco's thoughts.
0: I think the team has done a great job of this team surveillance, is give you some draggy perspective, the history back to where we are now and the view forward. We've had two wonderful guests and John, now we do it again with someone steeped in the Germanic ECB history.
1: Yeah, the Austrian Central Bank experienced their experience at the ECB on the board as well. And I'm really pleased to say that formerly of the ECB Gertrude al guggeral joins us now on the phone from Florence. Gertrude, fantastic to have you with us. We've reflected on the legacy of President Draghi. Let's talk about the task ahead for President Lagarde. What kind of ECB does she inherit?
5: I mean, the ECB has in these first 20 years um, achieved a lot, um, overcome the financial crisis, helped to to recover uh, the economy. Uh, But now the challenge is to find the right moment for, for an exit. At the moment, the economy is slowing down. So therefore, it's it's too early about to talk about an exit. Uh, but we we see that Mr Draghi has achieved a lot. Recently, more recently, there was more debate about the right uh, policy mix. I think the ECB will have a debate about uh, the strategy, a review of the strategy, and this is one of the first tasks of, of Mrs Lagarde.
1: Gertrude, what are the conditions that you would need to see that would be sufficient enough to follow through with an exit? The Japanese have talked about an exit, for 20 years, what would you need to see in the European economy to actually see that materialize?
5: I would say solid growth rates, um, sufficient progress on um, single market, on uh, banking union, uh, and also um, let's say readiness of fiscal policy to contribute to, to uh, solid economic growth.
1: Gertrude, many people disagreed with the latest round of QE. In fact, maybe the latest moves from President Draghi, his final act, was perhaps one of the most controversial acts within the governing council. Did you disagree with the latest round of QE? Is that something you were against?
5: Um, I'm no longer a member of the government.
1: No, I understand that, Gertrude, of course, fully. Yeah. I've introduced you but as but formally think- of the ECB, but your thoughts as they currently yeah. stand, is that a decision that you disagree with?
5: I mean, you, you need... To have the full picture when you take this decision, I think it is. Uh, it was very controversial to make an additional, um, let's say, rate cut. Um, I think it is. Um, yeah, it's important to think about the stabilization of rates and the normalization of rates as soon as the as the uh, economic situation allows it. Yeah, we are not yet there. It will take time, but the negative consequences of of, uh, low interest rates are visible in the economy. You see it in the, I would say, in the asset prices. uh, You see it in the uh, savings plans. Uh, So there is um, some fear in the the public also that uh, the policy is too loose. But I think for the time being, there is no possibility to change it. But uh, it's important to be aware of the negative uh, side effects of, of the
0: accommodative policy. Now, uh, Dr. Tempel-Guguru, thank you so much for being with us today. Gertrude thank you. Tempel-Guguru uh, of Austria and the former uh, vice governor of the Austrian Central Bank. And you hear there, John, something somewhat unfamiliar to American listeners. There's that Germanic that we associate with Axel Weber, Atmar Issing, with Tumpel Guggerold, they have a decidedly different view than many of the 27 nations. Yeah, more
1: recently, the former governor of the Austrian Central Bank as well, Governor Ivan Lavotny a similar a take Lavotny from him. What did say?
0: I, I miss it's A that. similar
1: take from him as well. He's now left the Austrian Central Bank, but certainly that was his view too.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.